What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell the story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. Welcome back to the Midnight Myth, everybody's favorite podcast where we analyze, discuss, and disseminate all ideas centered around history, mythology, and philosophy, and how those concepts and ideas bubble up into our popular storytelling. I am very excited to be back this week. Um, Just really grateful that I'm getting to do this podcast right now. This is a really weird time to be alive We're in the middle of a global pandemic. Um, We've been working from home, not leaving the house or leaving the house as little as possible. And I'm just grateful that I have a job, that I have a home, that I have food in my belly, that I'm healthy. And to everyone listening to us, I hope that you're safe. I hope you're taking all the necessary precautions. And I hope you're downloading and listening to The Midnight Myth because... Let's face it, we don't have much else to do right now. Absolutely. Uh, Podcasts are filling up a whole lot of my time as we continue to uh, count the days in quarantine. I keep forgetting what day it is. So hopefully we release this on the right day. There there are no days anymore. Nothing means anything anymore. the, The concept of days is gone. Yeah. It's almost like we are stuck in a cave and we are trying to make our way out of this dangerous, cavernous cave and surrounded by monsters and demons and things that are going to corrupt our reason and create mass murders. I have no idea what you're referring to. So we're going to talk this week about the HBO mini series The Outsider, based off of a novel by Stephen King. Now, we weren't really going to talk about the show because we didn't know how popular the show really was until HBO published its ratings and it was like their number one watch show. Yeah, it, it got more viewing than uh, True Detective or Watchmen, which was crazy to me, but re- really exciting because we loved the show. We like put it on just to see if it would be any good. And then we were like, uh, we have to stay up all night and watch all of this, don't we? Uh, and we were just crazy about it. So I'm glad to know that there was a good viewership out there for it. And I hope that you're all excited to hear us talk about it as we slowly, slowly morph and transform and shapeshift into a Stephen King podcast. Yeah, well, you know, it was a quietly popular show. It doesn't really have the buzz, uh, especially in the internet and storytelling podcasting community, that other shows have had. Um, you know, certainly like recently, everybody was talking about The Good Place because it just ended. For example, we did a podcast on it. 
friends of ours and other podcasts have talked about it, but no one's really talking about the show. And I think there's a ton to say. And yes, it's totally cool that we use Stephen King as our guiding North Star. Yeah. <laughs> but I also think it builds on some themes we talked last week with Doctor Who. I agree. I, I, I see a lot of connections. In particular, we discussed the nature and role of horror. And we, do- we talked about wanting to take the genre more seriously. Well, then here comes this horror TV show that is, was it 10, 12 episodes? Yeah, I think it was 10. Yeah, yeah. So, so 10 some hours of amazing horror TV. And I really, really can't wait to unpack it. Obviously, we'll spoil it. So if you haven't seen the show, do yourself a favor. Use your friend's HBO Go password if you don't have one yourself. Watch all 10 episodes and come back and listen to this. I guarantee you're going to enjoy this show. And it you is really, great. really want to go in blind. Uh, don't don't allow yourself any spoilers. So if you haven't seen it, I hate to tell you to turn off the podcast, but don't listen any further because it's full of surprises and they're really, really satisfying. So yeah, before we roll up our sleeves and start getting to work here, let's uh, do your thing, Laurel. Oh, wow. So uh, since we all have so much time on our hands, one of the things that if you love the show, uh, you could do for us that would eat up about five minutes of your quarantine time would be to go on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or wherever you listen and leave us a rating or a review. That means so much to us and costs no money to do. Uh, So we would just love you for the rest of your life if you would consider leaving us five stars and a few words about why you love the show because it really helps us reach new audiences. That's my like number one pitch here at the top. Uh, If you want to get in contact with us, we are always here and we want to, we want to hear from you. So uh, consider tweeting at us at the midnight myth. Definitely follow us over there and check out our pinned tweet for the giveaway we're currently running. Um, You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at midnight myth podcast. Uh, And you can head to our website, midnightmyth.com. Uh, Website has blogs. It has additional content. I'm actually about to publish a page of Uh, our favorite episodes that we've done. So if you're looking, if you're new to the podcast and you want to figure out how to get started, how to figure out exactly what we are, uh, I've I've compiled some of our very, very best uh, so that you can run through that playlist. Um, Also on the website, you'll find a link to our merch store uh, if you wanted to wear a Midnight Myth or Wheel of Cot t-shirt, or you'll find a link to our Patreon if you have a few dollars to support us in this time. Uh, we would love that because we make no money off of the podcast. Um, just a, a blanket like word here at the beginning, because it is a weird time. Um, Derek and I are very lucky to have jobs at this point in our lives that pay us and are allowing us to work from home uh, and not put ourselves and our loved ones at risk. Um, so as much as I want you to support us on Patreon so that we can get paid for the podcast, if you have friends or um, content creators that you follow and that you love um, and who maybe are gig workers, maybe don't have stable jobs that pay them to work from home, find out if they have a Patreon and consider supporting them there um, because it means so much to people who are not taking home a steady paycheck right now to have at least a little bit of income to tide them over while we're all figuring out what's going to happen next. So that's just a little PSA from me. Yeah, and if anyone out there of our Patreon members needs to not be a Patreon member because you got laid off or your revenue's not coming in due to this virus outbreak, we would totally understand. Yeah. Yeah, yeah totally okay. Um, 
Anyway, on with the show as as we should. Uh, should we start with a, a very high level, simple recap of the the show, The Outsider? Yeah, the show, The Outsider, is about a murder that happens in a small town of a child. All of the evidence points to the child's little league coach, a man by the name of Terry Maitland. 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 Yeah, Terry Maitland. Um, as the suspect, and the evidence is locked solid, and the we get introduced to one of the two main characters, Detective Ralph, who believes that Terry Maitland is in fact guilty, and they arrest him in the middle of a Little League game. This sends shockwaves throughout the entire community, as in the early episodes we learn that Terry Maitland was actually somewhere else when the crime occurred, yet all forensic and eyewitnesses place Terry Maitland at the scene of the crime. They have two opposing sets of evidence where Terry Maitland was presumably in two places at the same time. A lot of tragedy happens as a result of this child murder, starting with the child's mother dying of a heart attack or stroke. Then the uh, brother of the child takes a gun, murders Terry Maitland while he's on his way to his arraignment, and he himself gets killed in the crossfire. And then the father of the murdered child hangs himself. The entire family dies. And in it, we see this sort of spectrally hooded figure with an obscure mutating face. A lot of things happened. Eventually, the detective and the lawyer of Terry Maitland hire a private detective to try to help figure out this opposing set of evidence. And we are introduced to Holly, Holly Gibley. Holly is a super genius, slightly psychic detective who ends up backtracing the movements of the killer and comes to a theory that a ancient shape-shifting, child-eating boogeyman, so to speak, El Coco. Not Coco, is it? El Cuco, but El Coco, Coco is actually a, a variant of the name. Go on. Yeah, El Cuco is the actual murder and has been changing their shape, framing people for murders, eating children alive, and then watching the misery and fallout of this crime and feeding off of the psychic energy. Ultimately, she has to convince all of the other people working on Terry Maitland's case, including um, the lawyer, the lawyer's other detective, the Maitland family. It, it's amazing. So much drama happens. There is a cop who comes under the spell of this evil monster who's being psychically controlled and tortured in order do, to do his evil deeds. It culminates to a scene in a cave where they confront the, the monster, and they ultimately kill him, and they make the decision to cover up their own investigation and clearing Terry Maitland's name, and the show ends. Wonderful recap. Well done. Yeah, there's a lot that I left out that happens, and it, there's so much to this. We really could do a episode-to-episode episode podcast because each episode is so dense and so thick, so many amazing themes, and so many interesting philosophies and folklores are being discussed. We will obviously not be discussing every single aspect of the show. This is going to just recap some of the main themes we wanted to take away from it. Absolutely. Uh, so to kind of uh, roll up our sleeves and begin, uh, one of the reasons that I was really drawn to doing a podcast about this, one of the things that really uh, sort of uh, set me alight on this show was uh, the introduction of Holly Gibney and uh, what an amazing and interesting character she is and how she brings uh, into the conversation uh, a, a discussion of myth uh, and of folklore. 
She leads with that when she is first introduced. When we're trying to figure out the answer to this impossible crime, the first place she goes is, well, hey, what about all these universal myths? Uh, so the scene I'm talking about uh, when she's introduced to, uh, um, to Ralph by Alec in the bar, uh, she sees the evidence. She sees that Terry is seemingly in two places at once, that he is forensically linked and uh, linked through video to the murder, but also there is contradicting video that places him somewhere else at the exact same time. The first thing she says is, sounds like your guy's got a doppelganger from the German double-goer. And she uh, tells us the idea of the doppelganger, that uh, everybody on earth has an identical, non-biologically related twin, somebody who walks in our own shoes, looks exactly like us, and is usually a harbinger of doom. Uh, it's a really amazing scene where the first thing she brings in is world mythology, and we start to see her and Ralph go head to head uh, with this idea of how can you possibly bring in myth to answer this question about child killings. Yeah, I mean, Ralph says, I have no tolerance for the unexplained. Yeah. Point blank, you know, so I'm not going to delve into the mysteries. I'm not going to do that. Every problem has a tangible solution and answer. And he hearkens on, she says, the doppelganger, if it's a myth. If it's a myth. And he goes, you said if? And she explains a little bit of her backstory. It's an excellent way to compact character and exposition into a scene that's also setting up the core philosophical conflict between our two heroes, which are Ralph and Holly. I would yeah. say they're the two heroes of the show. And Holly embraces uh, the idea that there are unexplained phenomenons because she herself is one. Her super genius, her psychic ability, whatever it is that allows her to know as much as she knows, as fast as she knows it, defies all scientific explanation. So she's comfortable saying, if there's the word, that's the word, Mockingbird. Yeah, yeah, I love it. I absolutely love it. So my kind of way into discussing this show would be to access it through the world folklore that it introduces, if that's all right with you. Let's do it. So the titular outsider, the tear-drinking, child-eating, grief-devouring, shape-shifting monster is repeatedly uh, associated with a body of folklore that's pretty much universal around the boogeyman. Uh, so we've got the boogeyman as the actual monster in this story, which I just love to death. Uh, you are almost certainly familiar with the boogeyman. Uh, maybe your parents told you when you were a child that if you didn't do your chores or didn't brush your teeth or uh, stayed out too late, the boogeyman might come and get you. Uh, they're usually a figure who kidnaps, kills, or eats children in punishment for not doing some sort of household task or misbehaving. Um, one thing that I think is fascinating about the boogeyman is that when your parents talk about it, I don't know if everybody had this experience, but nobody ever tells you what the boogeyman looks like. They just say the boogeyman. He's going to come and get you. Uh, it's a very vague, uh, dark, mysterious figure in most versions of the tradition. Can I just interrupt and ask a question? Yeah. Did your parents actually threaten you that the boogeyman would come and get you? Because mine didn't. I don't think my parents actually did, but we definitely, uh, we had a children's book about the boogeyman. So my image of him is actually um, based on that. It was sort of a comical 
boogeyman book. Um, but he was definitely part of like the everyday parlance. But this goes back centuries, generations. It's something that is, as Holly says, on all continents. Uh, so there are some other names for it, including, uh, of course, El Cuco, or El Coco, who is referenced most frequently uh, on The Outsider. And that's uh, part of most Spanish-speaking countries. Their boogeyman tradition uh, is El Cuco or El Coco. There's also the Sack Man in Latin countries, Europe, and Asia. There's the Babao in Mediterranean and Arabic countries. There's the Butseman in some Germanic folklore, the Bubak in Czech. spring Jack from English folklore has some boogeyman tendencies. Jenny Greenteeth from English folklore, too. They might kidnap or eat children in some versions of the stories. And even the Russian Baba Yaga can conform in some stories as a child eater. Uh, and this is a tiny list. There are dozens and dozens of variations. Every culture has a boogeyman legend. This creature that eats children or kidnaps children. Heck, even Krampus is kind of a boogeyman figure that is all about passing judgment, that is all about punishment, and it's always uh, something that is framed as the parents warning children against misbehavior. Do you think one of the central questions that this show is getting at is what if the boogeyman was real? Do you think that's the starting uh, around uh, the whole principle of the show is centered around this idea that there is a boogeyman, the boogeyman does exist, and then it works outward from there? Do you think that's what this show is investigating? Uh, that's an interesting question, an interesting way to put it. Uh, I tend to think, and I'm sort of working this out in the moment, but I tend to think that the show, through Holly especially, is saying, okay, we have this set of evidence that does not stack up to generally agreed upon uh, systems of uh, logic and understanding of how crimes are solved. We're not doing true detective. You know, we've got something beyond this that we need to explain. Uh, so why don't we turn to this universal, tested, existing data set, which is world folklore, which is the collective unconscious, maybe. Uh, there's this sense that the show is asking, why do we have the same story in all cultures if there's not some degree of truth in it? I don't know if it's really trying to, you know, ask the viewer, why don't you think the boogeyman is actually real? Shouldn't you actually be afraid of the boogeyman? I think it's saying, look inward, look outward, try to understand why humanity keeps on uh, perpetuating stories based on these same fears. I think that's kind of what it's going for. Interesting. You know, as I'm listening to your point, I'm wondering where I first heard of the boogeyman. I don't believe it was from my parents because they just aren't those kind of parents that would try to scare me by threat of being eaten by a monster in order to get me to behave. So where I'm getting at here is the boogeyman exists in our collective consciousness I can't even tell you where the inception of that idea in my life came from. I don't know if it was a friend. I don't know if it was a foe. I don't know if it was a parent, a relative, a cousin. A movie or have, a book or what. Yeah. I have no idea where it came from, but yet I've always known about the boogeyman. I can't remember a time where the boogeyman wasn't a phrase that made sense to me. And... Every culture having this sort of child-eating thing 
does pose some interesting questions that I do think the show is working through, through the, the main characters. So if it is a universal part of our folklore, it begs the question, why? Why the boogeyman? Why does that exist? In the world of the show, the answer is because it's real, right? There is an actual boogeyman. So these myths are based upon the real phenomenon of this monster who travels around town to town, murdering and eating kids. And parents are legitimately afraid. And they're like, hey, watch out. There could be a boogeyman out there. Why do you think this myth, this folklore exists today and is so universally known? I mean, that is an extraordinarily hard question to answer. And not just because we can't really pinpoint the origins or the inception point of this folklore. We don't know uh, necessarily what culture was the first to have a child-eating monster. We don't know uh, how this spread uh, in a definitive degree. Uh, so it's really hard to figure out what fears this was born out of. But it, it feels almost uh, like it feels almost like the most natural uh, piece of folklore to have spread the way that it does. Because what is more terrifying than uh, children being taken or children being harmed? What makes us feel more afraid? What makes us feel more disgusted than the harming of children? Uh, and then there's the sort of utility of the boogeyman as used by parents, especially, because that's what is most usually referenced with this uh, folkloric figure, is that it's a cautionary tale used for children in order to scare them into behaving properly. So there uh, is this uh, sort of two-sided coin of like our deepest possible fears, which is that something could happen to our children, or that the, the unknown, the thing in the darkness could come out and take us. Uh, and on the other side, okay, this is useful. So it's been perpetuated throughout cultures. It has moved, it has been part of this exchange and has lasted for so long because it is useful to uh, you know, conform children into doing the right thing. Uh, and there are so many like modern figures of horror who I think uh, continue to carry on this sense of like cautionary tale, judgment, punishment. Think of Freddy Krueger who goes after young people for the most part. Think of Jason Voorhees who is a punisher who deals out judgment on teenagers at camp. Uh, it's it. it, yeah. Well, and uh, I'll come back to it. I'll come back to Pennywise because I think he's inextricably tied to uh, the outsider. But uh, it, it's almost a no-brainer. It's almost like, why, why do I even need to ask this question? Why did this survive? It feels so natural and so deep to us. Yeah, you know, I'm thinking of Joseph Campbell, who in A Hero with a Thousand Faces discussed the idea of a myth or a folktale or a hero in a story um, having symbolic truth, not literal truth. And so the boogeyman may not be true in a literal sense as it is in the world of the outsider. I don't think there are shape-changing monsters eating children in the world. But if we ask ourselves the question, what's the symbolic truth of the boogeyman? It manifests, yes, fears of, you know, your child misbehaving. And if you think about it in an ancient context... A misbehaving child is a very dangerous thing yeah. because the world is hostile and threatening. So there are literal boogeymen, symbolic boogeymen out there that the child is not listening and wandering through the woods and gets lost. 
what happens to that child? Well, they would likely not be found, be killed, and eaten by animals. Right, yeah. They'd be consumed by the quote-unquote boogeyman. So communicating to the child that the world is hostile and threatening in a way that they need to follow the norms and practices and respect the authority of the parent and other authority figures is a way to say that to a child that they'll understand symbolically. Oh, there's boogeymen out there. I can't just trust everyone. The world is dangerous. So I've got to follow these protocols. A child wouldn't think this, but I've got to follow the rules of my parents and then my teachers and then et cetera, et cetera. Otherwise, I could fall prey to the symbolic boogeyman, which could be lost in the woods. It could be, um, you know, a predator out there preying on children, you know, that do exist in the real world. It could be just falling down and breaking a bone. You know, all of these dangers that could happen to you outside of the comfort and warmth and protection of the home and of the parent are all symbolic boogeymen. Yeah. Oh, I think that's really well put. You know, on the other hand, too, it's also sometimes easier, um, even for adults, but probably especially for young people, to think of, okay, the boogeyman might get me, than to think, if I trust this stranger, they might actually be like a human monster who might do something horrible to me. Um, so, right. yeah, there's there's sort of something that is um, just a little more accessible to the human mind uh, to think of a monster than to... Uh, really confront the fact that humanity can get really, really, really dark. And then from this perspective, teaching your child about the boogeyman is not a bad thing, right? It's not you're trying to punish the child. It's not you're trying to scare the child so that they can't fall asleep at night. It's because you're trying to communicate to them in a way that they can understand that there are things that you need to do to protect yourself from real dangers. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And an easy way to compact that down is to say, Watch out, there's a boogeyman. Yeah. Um, so the other aspect that I want to bring in here about uh, the outsider, uh, El Cuco, is that the the show introduces this idea of it as a grief eater. So it is not just a child killer. It's not just one who consumes the flesh of humans in order to survive. It also sticks around uh, and feeds off of the emotional carnage that follows the death of a child. So you described what happened to the Frankie Peterson family after the child's death. Everybody started dropping like fr- like flies, and it was just this atmosphere of total despair, and that's what the outsider feeds off of. I think this is an interesting thing to introduce to a boogeyman-like figure, because it appears to be the show's invention or the book's invention in uh, whatever case. And it conflates that with El Cuco or the boogeyman. I was trying to find in my research uh, an example of an ancient folklore figure that feeds on grief or fear or psychic energy or emotion or whatever. And it's surprisingly really hard to find an example that goes back uh, as even close to as far as the boogeyman. There are, however, a lot of examples of this in contemporary storytelling in the modern world. So the first thing I thought of was the psychic vampire or the energy vampire, uh, which is an idea of uh, the vampire, the blood-sucking demon, who rather than blood feeds off of energy, feeds off of psychic energy in some way. Um, But this, more than being a uh, figure of folklore, is more used to describe personality disorders. 
You might uh, know an energy vampire in your life who is a person that you spend time with and you feel really tired and really like all of your energy has been sucked out of you by this person by the time you've stopped hanging out with them. We all have energy vampires yep. in our lives. A coworker, or a friend, some, even a family member, someone you may even actually like. Yeah. You're like, oh man, it's a lot to hang out with that like, person. They're just really draining. Uh, so that's how that term is most often used. Although I believe the term psychic vampire was popularized by Anton LaVey from the Church of Satan. Uh, so that's fun. Uh, there's also Dementors from Harry Potter. <laughs> Points for just mentioning the Book of Satan. Anyway, gotta, go on. Gotta go, Church of Satan. Um, Dementors from Harry Potter can sort of suck the joy out of a room. They feed on the negative emotion and despair that's left after they've sucked out your happiness. Um, there's also Vigo in Ghostbusters 2, who feeds off of uh, negativity that comes through the slime. Uh, so he's definitely an example of it. And of course, there's Pennywise from It. Uh, the dancing clown who also is a shape-shifting fear eater. He is sustained by the negative emotion of fear, especially fear uh, that is produced by children. Uh, so it's a very Stephen King-esque idea. It's something that I think he revisits in a lot of his works. I do believe there is a, a similar character in The Dark Tower too, but I didn't read that far. If only you knew someone who was currently rereading The Dark Tower and and talking about it, that would be useful, wouldn't it? Yeah, it sure would. It, it, psychic power is everywhere within The Dark Tower. It's an idea that Stephen King plays with in a lot of his books. You might know it if you've never read The Dark Tower from The Shining, in which there are characters who are telepathic. Um, Holly Gibney yeah. has a sense of... of some sort of supernatural uh, ESP kind of sense that allows her to know and store information and access it quicker, better, and faster as if she knows it already. Um, so she has a sort of bit of the shine. In The Dark Tower, it's called The Touch, and there are several creatures that can feed off of the psychic energy. There is uh, an entire almost concentration camp where people, psychics, are fed brain matter, psychic energy from twins. They extract the psychic connection that twins have and feed it to their psychics to enhance their psychic abilities. Literally a almost like um, a psychic cannibal. And there is also a, a bad guy named Mordred who is a shape changer, so can change the shape of a human and into a spider that has strong psychic abilities that feeds on both the flesh and psychic energy of his victims. So we'll often read the mind while devouring someone so that it can suck the fear in with the actual flesh. Long-winded point to say, it's definitely an idea that resonates in Stephen King's work. The idea that you can feed off of the psychic and emotional pain, and that can give sustenance to a uh, dangerous or malevolent or evil being just as much as the actual raw flesh. Yeah, that's awesome. Thank you for bringing that context in. Um, yeah, th so this idea is uh, incredibly resonant with Stephen King, is something that shows up a lot in uh, contemporary storytelling, but is harder to find in a concrete way 
uh, in ancient folklore that might have surrounded the boogeyman. Uh, so I think it's interesting that the outsider chooses to put these two things together in creating the ultimate monster. So uh, someone who comes into your town and not only kills your children, but also wreaks total emotional havoc in order to sustain itself and in order to gain some sort of pleasure. What I think is interesting about all of this, when we sort of put it together and actually confront the monster within the outsider, is that when we finally come face to face with it in the final episode, uh, when Holly starts asking it questions, when Ralph is holding a gun to its head, the monster comes across much more uh, formless, much more grounded, much more aimless uh, than anything I've been discussing so far. The stories of the boogeyman serve a purpose, and the boogeyman himself serves a higher purpose, which is to punish or to uh, pass judgment. The um, idea of a psychic vampire uh, contains this supernatural sense of purpose. The outsider does not seem to have that sense of purpose. Holly asks it, what are you? Who are you? What is your name? What is your nature? And the outsider responds with, we're not very good at answering each other's questions. I eat to survive just like you do. He absolutely refuses to answer the question about what is your nature because who knows their actual nature, not this monster. And to me, that feels like a very subversive thing to have in a horror story or a supernatural horror is a creature who appears to have arisen out of this incredibly purposeful mythology with nothing more than an animal sense of I need to eat to survive. I eat children because they taste better. I don't have any higher purpose. I'm not sent here to punish your children for misbehaving. I don't know who I am or why I do what I do, except that dude's got to eat. I don't know if there are others like me. Yeah. He, he, he says, you know, I've sensed it. Like, I sense that maybe there are others out there somewhat like me. Yeah, I was, uh, you know, vacationing in Derry, Maine, and I got a sense I might have a cousin up there. Or, you know, I was hanging out in Colorado and there were these, you know, psychic vampires that literally eat the psychic yeah. energy of the children they murder. Yeah. As in... Um, Dr. Sleep. Dr. Sleep. Thank you. I was drawing the blank there. Um, to to elaborate on that that point, there is a, a central question of someone confronting you and saying, who are you? What are you? What is your nature? If someone were to literally ask me that, let's say an alien lands here, I wouldn't know how to concretely answer. I'd be like, I'm a human being. I know that. Yeah. And I know that my species has spent millennia trying to contemplate our nature and we still don't really have the answer. And the idea there is that why would the monster have any firmer philosophical yeah. or metaphysical grasp on its sense of self, its sense of continuity, its sense of purpose? Why should the evil one get to know the answers to why evil exists? They don't. The evil doesn't know why he's evil. He just knows he's hungry. Yeah. You know, and just knows that he needs to feed. And this is what sustains the evil creature's life. So it goes out there and it feeds. It looks at humans the way humans look at their food. That's all it is. It's blind to their suffering. It cares not about what... Uh, the, the humans are going through because if it doesn't eat the humans, it doesn't live. So it's going to eat the humans. Yeah. Yeah. And in a certain respect, that is so much more monstrous 
than, you know, knowing that Freddy Krueger is an angry spirit who was wrongfully accused and burned. So he's punishing the children of the people by hunting in their dreams. And you could take that to just about any major pop culture horror figure. And at the end of the day, there's usually a concrete reason as to why the haunting, the murdering, the slashing, whatever it is that, that they're doing is, is happening. There's usually a reason that they act that way. And we crave to know that reason. You know, in the Middle Ages, one of the, the biggest debates that existed um, coming out of the ancient Roman uh, theological conclaves when Christianity really got its institutional foothold and started forming a coherent bureaucratic religion that was linked to the state of Rome and then the emerging kingdoms of Europe, one of the questions the theologians were trying to grapple with and ask was, why is there evil? How can there be evil if God is good and God is powerful? God would have to be at least in part evil if God created evil. A question that still remains unanswered to this day and philosophers and theologians are still debating, and there's a lot out there on the problem of evil, which I didn't come prepared to talk about. But we have talked about it on the podcast before. I believe we also um, discussed it on our episode on The Shining. So it's something that comes up uh, in our reflections on Stephen King. You know, and it's one thing that what this what this is saying, what the outsider is saying about that problem is, I just am. Yeah, I just am evil. I don't know why I'm any more evil. You know, I don't look at what I do as evil. You know, like from my perspective, you're just food. It's not evil at all. Yeah. You know, and that is just as monstrous, if not more than knowing he was a malevolent spirit who was wronged a millennia ago, who is now, or sometimes the, the thing doing the hunting is a misunderstood ghost that's actually trying to help, like in the sixth sense. You know, like there's this this idea that we need an explanation to why this evil exists. And the outsider robs us of that. And it says, you know, there's a great scene where the character Ralph is in a car. I forget what episode. And he's like starting to come to grips with the idea that the outsider, the boogeyman is real. And he says, if this creature is real, it changes everything. Everything we think we know has been changed. And another character says, Alec, he says, yo man, just take small bites. Yeah. It's like, don't let this rock your world. Let's just survive and get through this. Almost saying, not quite saying ignorance is bliss because they need the knowledge of the outsider of the boogeyman in order to defeat, to defeat him. So knowledge is power in this. They're not saying be ignorant, but they're saying, slow your roll. Don't let this bog your mind. We all have a job to do. Yeah. Well, because it would be paralyzing to actually let all of this in at once. If you have lived your entire life with one knowledge system, and if you have uh, been predisposed to not accept a certain level of uh, you know, fact outside of that knowledge system, that will paralyze you. Especially for Ralph, who is still mourning his own child, uh, and who has been dealing with the grief and the trauma of that, and recently saw an apparition of his child, uh, telling him to let him go. If he accepts 
the outsider. And if he lets all of this into his psyche at this moment, then he has to accept that, yeah, his son actually showed up and said, let me go. And that grief in this moment, which is the, we need to get this done and stop this thing from taking any more children, that grief would paralyze him. Yeah, he absolutely is a character looking for answers in the way that's most comfortable for him. He has a core set of beliefs and of paradigms that he approaches to the problems of crime and criminality. Those have been right his entire life and upending them and turning them on the, its head not only gets to the core of his professional self, also his emotional self, as you just laid out. It would mean that his son might be able to communicate to him behind the, the grave and he has to, he has to finally let his son go. It may mean that there is magic, or at least seemingly magic. There are, there are forces so powerful and beyond your comprehension, they appear magical to you, and you have to confront this. And the character gets to grow, and he does get a sense of moving on. Um, I would like to, in that vein, since yeah. you brought up Ralph, I, could we pivot to another topic outside I, yeah. out of the folklore? Is that let's, okay? Let's do it. Um, I want to talk about the way Stephen King introduces his two protagonists in Holly and Ralph that share a common goal but have a philosophical difference. I love the way that King does that, that their philosophical difference leads to conflict. It makes them getting to the end goal more complicated, harder, it takes them longer, which then continues the drama and keeps you watching. And one of the questions that you're waiting for is, when will Ralph wake the F up and realize he's fighting a monster, not a human? Yeah. You know, and like, when will he? And when he fight, and I love how the show slowly lets that happen. And until Ralph decides that he's fighting a monster, they're not going to fight the monster. And it takes a long time for him to come to that. And I'd like to explore that relationship. Holly and Ralph, what is their philosophical conflict and how does the show use that philosophical conflict to increase the drama? Is that cool with you? I would love that. Ralph to me is definitely a character who thought he was on True Detective and then got plucked and put into a Stephen King supernatural horror and is like trying to come to terms with the fact that his genre changed. Uh, so I, I love it. I would love to talk about the sort of philosophical yeah, differences. very meta. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah, yeah. So let's, let's roll up our sleeves. Let's talk a little philosophy. The way I read the conflict between Holly and Ralph is that it is a epistemological conflict. Big word there. What most storytellers do when they want philosophical conflict among characters is they usually introduce a moral conflict. It makes sense because morality governs what you can and cannot do, what is ethical and what is not ethical. So it's really easy for two characters to have a different view over what's right and wrong and they come into conflict. Think Captain America and um, Iron Man in Civil War. They have a moral conflict around the Sokovia Accords. That conflict leads other characters to, to choose sides and to follow them into this battle where the superheroes finally fight. Pretty easy, makes a lot of sense, and it's super effective storytelling. At the heart of most great conflicts that you see, 
in particular among heroes, when the heroes are fighting, they're usually fighting over what's the right or wrong thing to do. We've been rewatching Lost, tons of debates. Oh, yeah. Over what the right or wrong thing to do is. And the heroes are constantly debating and fighting and trying to do get everyone to agree with their version of what's the right thing to do. Should they live at the caves? Should they live at the beach? Should they uh, hunt or should they grow food? Should they attack the others? Should they be um, just try to build defenses against the others? It's the bread and butter of what makes that a great show. Stephen King does something even more interesting. He has the characters both fundamentally agree on the right and wrong things to do in that they both believe that they should find and stop killers if they have the power to do it. And if a killer has done a crime, they should bring the right person to justice. The conflict is one of epistemology. Epistemology is the, is the uh, philosophical study of knowledge itself. This comes, shocker, from ancient Athens, like all Western ph philosophical traditions. The Athenians saw the world where knowledge systems were packed into myths, poetries, and songs. This is generally considered a mythopoetic knowledge structure. For example, if you are an ancient Egyptian and you're a builder and you have to build a palace for the pharaoh, that palace for the pharaoh is designed so that the pharaoh, when they die, can become Osiris. And only when that happens can the Nile flood. If you were to ask an ancient Egyptian builder, hey, how do you know? that by building this palace for the pharaoh, it is going to make sure that the pharaoh becomes Osiris and hence the, the Nile will flood. They'll be like, how do I know? It's, it's part of, it's, it's the myth, right? I know it because it's everywhere. That's yeah, why so we're it, doing so it. So it is. It is because that is the way it is. The myths have told us this. The songs have told us this. The legends have told us this. And by the way, the Nile's always flooded. That ancient builder might be very knowledgeable in subjects we now call mathematics, architecture. They might be very skilled, but they don't fundamentally view themselves as a uh, geometrist, right? They view themselves as part and parcel of the connection to the pharaoh to make sure that the Nile floods. They approach knowledge in a mythopoetic way. Well, the Greeks were like, well, I don't know. I don't think you really know that that happens. And they would start, they started observing natural phenomenon. Based upon observing phenomenon, they started having discussions and they were breaking down the old mythopoetic systems and they were challenging the very nature of that knowledge system and they called it logos, which is the word now we call logic. So they invented this thing called logic and it works pretty like, much like this. I observe a thing happen, I study that thing, and I, based upon that, I can make a prediction about said thing. This was revolutionary. How do we know that something is happening? It's because we can observe it, we can understand it, and we can predict it. You flash forward a few millennia, this gets added a step further during the uh, late Middle Ages when we start observing or when people start, pardon me, making some pretty amazing observations, they start noticing that the world's probably not flat, 
They start noticing that it's not the center of the universe. They start theorizing that it's round. They're starting to understand that there's a difference between stars and planets in the sky. They're developing things like telescopes. And out of this comes what at the time was called natural philosophy, which is understanding the philosophy of the natural world. And how do we understand the natural world led to what we now call the scientific method, which is a way to use the knowledge structures started by ancient Greece, adding experimentation and adding an element of scrutiny and peer review. And this is a gross simplification of all of this. And from there, you get the idea that we can observe phenomenon, we can study it, we can make experiments, we publish the results, we submit our findings to scrutiny, and based upon that, we can, we can finally say that we know something. For example, we know gravity is real because every single experiment on gravity proves that it's real. And because of that, we can know something. It's called gravity. In many ways, a detective is working in an epistemological framework. They're asking the fundamental question, how do I know someone committed this crime? Well, there's forensic evidence, there's eyewitness evidence, um, and based upon those, we can reconstruct the events. One of our earliest episodes, we talked about the detective's role to bring order to chaos. And if they are to bring order to chaos, a crime, a chaotic event happens, they have to know what happened. So epistemology is the core driver, philosophically speaking, in a crime drama show such as this one. How do they know? And we have two characters that approach this scientifically, right? They use the tools of the detective trade. They look at the evidence and they are trying to make a conclusion based upon facts and theories. What then is the difference between Ralph and Holly? Ralph operates on a fundamental paradigm, an epistemological framework that says crimes are committed by people. The logical theory would be there are people in the world. Some people are bad. The bad people commit crimes. You can use the, the scientific and detective tools of modern police work to figure out who committed that crime and punish the person who did it. This, this paradigm has been correct for him his entire life. It has always worked and it is always true. Holly doesn't approach the crime with the same bias. She doesn't approach assuming that all crimes have to be committed by people. That's a huge leap because all we all know can say for certain that exists in the world are people. Anything else is subject to scrutiny at best, laughable at worst, and Holly approaches the problems completely open. She doesn't have any confirmation bias. She doesn't approach her job with an epistemological framework only, pardon me, she does have an epistemological framework, but she doesn't have a paradigm governing it. Her framework is, I follow the evidence and it takes me to where it goes. There's a great scene in which she discusses an Aristotelian logical theory. So Aristotle one of, if not the most important ancient Greek philosophers. He taught Alexander the Great. Um, he is responsible for words like physics, metaphysics, ethics. Um, 
uh, he's zoology. This guy really did a lot to advance knowledge. Not all of his ideas are good and not all of them are right. And not all of them have held up, but he came up with a theorem, a way that you can use logic and you can decide if something is true or not within the framework of language. I'll give you an example. All men are mortal. Socrates is a man. Therefore, Socrates is mortal. A is equal to B. B is equal to C. Therefore, A is equal to C. Correct. Now, Holly is like, okay, a person can't exist in two realities at the same time. If I have one person, they can't be in two places at once because that is literally impossible. And here I have a person in the same place at the same time. The only explanation that you can have that's fact-based is one of them's not a person. Or one of them's not that same person. Yeah. Yeah. So she's approaching it with the same, uh, go ahead. Well, I would say that they are the same person, right? Okay. Okay. So they are the same person. They look exactly the same. All of their DNA evidence is the same. Sure. Sure. So one of them cannot be a human. One of them is masquerading as a human. Gotcha. And that is the, the, that is the, how she ends up coming to needing an answer to explain this very real phenomenon of one person pretending down to the DNA to being another is how she comes to the theory of El Cuckoo. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what I was going to say is, so yes, she does approach this with the same sort of scientific airtight logic as Ralph would. She just has expanded her definition of what evidence is. And I think once again, we can look back to her introduction when she first meets Ralph and offers myth as a possible answer and says, you know, if it's a myth or, you know, maybe this is just how ancient people dealt with bipolar disorder or, you know, the darkness within, uh, she has expanded the idea of what evidence can be. So evidence uh, from the collective unconscious, evidence from the fact that every culture has a boogeyman myth is just as uh, useful and is just as vital and is just as valid as video evidence of Terry Maitland in two places at once. And because she is fundamentally also an outsider, as she says at an the very end. An outsider knows an outsider, and yeah. because that she has an element of unexplained, near magical kind of abilities, she is open-minded to every single possibility and only lets the facts guide her. She doesn't get guided by a preconceived confirmation bias. Whereas Ralph, because he comes to the problem with it has to be a human, the only possible person, the only possible thing that could ever commit a crime is a human, which is not a crazy thing for a police officer to believe at all. He takes an incredibly long, frustrating time to come to the idea that I have to expand my epistemology. I have to remove my confirmation bias. I have to come to recognize that I don't know everything I thought I knew. Hard thing for people to do. To recognize ignorance within themselves is one of the hardest philosophical challenges any thinking rational person goes through. Oh my goodness, I was so sure X was true and it turned out it was Y. And if you don't think that's hard, look at what the Catholic Church did when Galileo said the world was round and Copernicus said the world was round. When people have a confirmation bias and someone comes in 
to challenge that and say, no, all of the evidence is to the contrary, people will often fight tooth and nail to protect what they already know to be true. And Ralph is no different. Yeah, yeah. And watching him come around to an expanded epistemology, watching him say the evidence is actually overwhelming at this point. I have to, I have to realter my paradigms and I've got to think about this in a completely different way so that I can do my job, which is to stop criminals. And for, in order for him to get there, to even get there is amazing. Yeah. And it's a credit to the fantastic character of Holly, who is so well written, who is so well acted, who is so well executed that she is able to, by the sheer force of her intellect, wit, and skill, recalibrate a stubborn old white dude who thinks he's right all the time. Yeah. I, is amazing. I really think Cynthia Erivo and um, Ben Mendelsohn are inspired casting in this because Ben Mendelsohn is uh, famed for playing villains and bad guys and greedy corporate dudes or deadbeat dads. Um, and... Uh, and Cynthia Erivo is a Broadway star, uh, and they're such an odd couple, and you can see that epistemological uh, conflict between them, and it's so uh, surprising to see them come together and work together. I think one of the narrative techniques that um, compounds this, that makes this even more effective, is the cast of characters that surrounds them, too, and how each one of them lives in a different place on that sort of spectrum between uh, either whether you want to call it superstition or um, the ability to believe something beyond your you know usual observation and the the more Ralph like uh, staunch inability to accept those things. So we have like Eunice, the GBI officer, who uh, has this superstition left over from uh, his Catholic upbringing and who was told stories of Il Cuco while he was a child. Or we have Jeannie, who is Ralph's wife, who is totally open to accepting this and is fiercely protective of Ralph because she knows that him not being able to accept it is going to lead to his own danger. On the other end, we have Glory, the wife of Terry Maitland, who refuses to accept it. We have Howie, who laughs in the face of uh, Alec, who kind of wants to entertain the notion. We have these continued, uh, we have several different people who serve as these opposing poles at different places on the spectrum with Holly and Ralph on the outside being like the, the heavyweights for this epistemological battle. Yep, and they all sort of join sides one way or another, supporting each other around this conflict and until eventually the evidence is overwhelmingly, um, you know, pro proves that there is some sort of a magical creature hunting and killing and feeding off of children and the grief that eventually they all have to come around to it. And that to me is one of the, that that's the secret sauce of why I love this show. Yeah. I love that it puts these two heroes, well thought out, well done characters with a core uh, philosophical conflict, the same goal, right? Which is solve the crime, stop more crimes from happening, but different approaches to the problem and how they get there and how all of the other characters surrounding this are going to be dragged through this conflict that they have until they eventually get to the right conclusion. Yeah. And it's also optimistic in the respect that people can change their paradigms when confronted with overwhelming evidence and reason. You can persuade people that you're right when the facts are all on your side. 
really important thing to remember contemporary 2020 as we approach problems where some people will attack those problems in a fact-free way. Yeah. And how do we, and we can't attack those problems unless we work together. Just like this group must come to work together to stop this monster. They have to first agree on what they know and that, that that monster does exist and is real. And until they all agree that on that base level fact, they can't all work together to stop them. And it's going to take all of them in order to defeat this. And that is a absolute metaphor for a lot of things happening in the world right now. Yeah. You know, you can apply that to problems of social justice, ecological terrorism and ecological destruction, the coronavirus. There are so many problems where it's like, until we all agree on the fundamental facts of what we know. It's really, really hard to find solutions. Yeah, we can't do anything about it because we don't agree. And like... This show says to us, you can get there. You can persuade people to that. Not only can you get there, but it can be emotionally cathartic and it can be life-changing if you do. Uh, Ralph's whole arc is toward being able to process the trauma of his his son's loss and, you know, the the consequences that have radiated out of that you know if he hadn't lost his son he probably wouldn't have gone after terry maitland as hard as he did because seeing a child being killed is brutal for anyone but being a father who has lost a child he was especially predisposed to uh to really hold terry's feet to the fire and that led to a a deep amount of destruction psychological destruction for himself as well so being able to accept the new paradigm allowed him to gain that sort of emotional freedom and to in some way process the trauma that he has been holding on to for so so long so it says that not only can we really change the way that we think but it can be truly productive to our psyche and often in our search for truth our preset assumptions that we approach the problem get in the way. The ancient Greeks loved a bad idea in terms of the philosophical construction and discussion and dissemination of philosophy. A bad idea was great. And you know why it was great? Because you could rule it out and then you can get to the good idea. Yeah, It's okay to be wrong. There's nothing wrong with that. That is the step towards learning the actual truth of whatever problem it is. And one of the lessons of this show, in particular, if we look at the philosophical conflict between the two heroes, is that it's okay to be wrong. It's not okay to continue to be wrong when all of the evidence is telling you that. That is the problem. Once you, once you are so convinced that you know the truth of a thing, once you have confirmed your own epistemological framework so much so that you can't entertain any challenge to it, then you are no longer um, being philosophically genuine or philosophically honest. At that point in time, you're destructive towards your goals, which is to, if you're studying epistemology, to figure out what you know and how you know it. And if you're a detective, you have to figure out what you know and how you know it. And you cannot let your biases get in your way. Otherwise, you're not actually going to get to the truth of a thing. I love it. Um, You know, I would be remiss uh, if I didn't, uh, before we end, talk about probably my favorite character on this whole show, which is 
Andy Cat Cabbage. Um, uh, my heart just beats and bursts for Andy Cat Cabbage and his beautiful relationship with Holly Gibney. Uh, I just loved every second of those two characters on screen together. Uh, and I also get to make an Arthurian reference on the podcast because of him. So I just want to point out that one of the best lines on the show, uh, where Andy who is clearly smitten with Holly, looks at her and says, I have the strength of 10 because my heart is pure. Uh, and she just giggles at it because it's so cheesy, but it's totally working on her, is a paraphrased line from Alfred Lord Tennyson's Sir Galahad, which was later part of his Arthurian poem cycle, Idols of the King. Uh, and the real line is, my good blade carves the casks of men, my tough lance thrusteth sure. My strength is as the strength of 10 because my heart is pure. Um, wonderful line, wonderful character who ended up giving his life for the others in order to try and help Holly defeat the monster uh, and who just would do anything for her because he is as pure as Sir Galahad. Uh, so I just wanted to appreciate that for just a moment. Um, also at the end of this podcast, uh, this is a, a sort of off-topic off recommendation, but uh, I loved this show. I'm really interested in reading the book. I especially loved that it was a, a horror story that was able to incorporate world mythology into it. And if that is something that you like too, um, I have a book recommendation for you. Uh, and it's called Experimental Film by Gemma Files. I won't give away too much, but in a similar way, it uses Wendish and Yazidi mythology in order to create a really unique horror story that's also about characters coming to terms with what they know. So uh, if you're looking for a book recommendation while you're quarantined, Experimental Film by Gemma Files. And until next time, everyone, be kind. Be kind. Be kind.